Who's ready to talk about angels? Let's go. All right. Daniel chapter 10. Daniel chapter 10. Let's begin by reading verses 1 through 3. This is going to be an exciting study for you today. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. So that that first verse is kind of an introduction for the remaining three chapters of Daniel. And then in verse 2, we get into it. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the first three weeks, for the full three weeks. This is still the prophetic section of Daniel. Chapters 1 through 6, we've been calling the narrative portion of Daniel. Chapters 7 through 12 has been the prophetic portion of Daniel, and that it has been mostly visions of the future related to Israel. That's the other note that we've picked up. Chapter 2 through 7 was a chiastic structure focusing on the Gentile nations. Chapter 1 and then chapter 8 to the end are concerning the Jewish nation. And then also there's another structural point here, and that chapter 10 through 12 is one unit. This is all the same vision from this until the end of the book. And there's a much longer introduction. The vision that he sees is in greater detail. And the conclusions he draws are are earth-shattering. And we know them, we're familiar with them because we're New Testament believers. But this is a very important pericope, is the word, meaning it's just a discrete section of the book. It's going to give us a climactic prophecy of Israel's very troubled future, but also the glorious destiny that awaits them. And we're picking up the timestamp that it gives us is two years after the last chapter. Chapter 9 was of the first year of Cyrus. Chapter 10, we have the third year of Cyrus. So this is circa 536 to 535 BC. We're at the point in Old Testament studies where we can nail down the dates very precisely. Now in the first year... Of Cyrus's reign, as we saw last time, Cyrus allowed the Jews to return home from their exile to rebuild the temple. Ezra chapter 1, verse 1 through 4 gives his actual proclamation. You can go and read what he sent out. And we read through the rest of Ezra and Nehemiah what happened when they went back. And part of the unfortunate truth is that most of the Jews did not go back. It was a small faithful remnant that did. But this is the third year of Cyrus. So they're already back in fulfillment of what God had said through Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44, 28, hundreds of years before this, God picked Cyrus by name. He prophesied there's going to be a king named Cyrus from Persia who's going to allow my people to go home and rebuild after the exile. Even though when Isaiah was writing, there hadn't even been an exile yet. So all of this has come to pass. And Daniel receives, it says, a word from the Lord. And it includes his Babylonian name that he was given, Belteshazzar, uh, because this is a very official opening to this piece, you can see. And also because he, he's likely intending to leave this for posterity, even among his own his own fellow Chaldeans, as they were called, the fellow uh, wise men that the king had in his court. It could be that this is the information, part of the information that the wise men in the Christmas story used to be looking for the star that announced Jesus was born. But he says that it was true, and then we have a translation difference here in verse 1. It says, it was true and it was a great conflict. 
Almost all, and I believe all of the newer translations, meaning not Old King James or New King James, have something to that effect. A great conflict, a great battle, a great war. The Old King James says, and the time appointed was long. The New King James has something similar, that it was a true word, and it was a word for a long time from now. But the New King James has a footnote saying something like this. The Hebrew there is the word, words tzava gadol. Gadol means great. Tzava is where you get the word tsevaot, which means hosts. Tzava means host or army or conflict. And there is a, you'd have to do something called emendation in order to make it say something like the long, the latter days, meaning you'd have to, you'd have to propose a different wording for the original text in order to get what the King James Version has. So the newer translations are actually much more of a literal translation. That he's saying this is a true word, and it's a word about a great battle or a great army, a great fight. And that is, in fact, what we're going to see. Now, at this time, it says Daniel was mourning. He was mourning, and he was engaging in what we call a Daniel fast. If you've ever studied fasting before, there's something called an absolute fast where you don't have any food or water. A regular fast would be something like having water but no food. A Daniel fast is what he says here. No delicacies, right? No wine, no meat. And he did not anoint himself. This is he's still continuing to eat fruits and vegetables, presumably, but he's not having anything that is really delicious, it's food for the purpose of sustaining himself, not to delight his, his tongue or his palate. And so for those of you who maybe have been told by doctors that you shouldn't be fasting because of some health issue, this is maybe something you could do, right? You can, you can have fruits and vegetables for a while, but you don't need to be having cake and soda and steak and things like that. It's called a Daniel fast. Why is he doing this? I would say probably because he is mourning over his nation, during this three-week period, because of the date we're going to get in the next verse, this would have been Passover, that Daniel is once again not in Jerusalem for Passover. We read earlier in the book that he served in the king's court until the first year of Cyrus. This is now the third year. So it would seem that Daniel has retired at this point, but perhaps he was just too frail to make the journey and he couldn't go. Maybe that's why he was mourning it. It really doesn't say. The subject of this chapter here that we're going to look at today is this subject of prayer and fasting in response to distress. Maybe Daniel is considering the fact that his people have gone home, but as you know from Ezra and Nehemiah, it was not an easy time for them. And it took a long time for the construction to be completed, well past Daniel's lifetime. And in days that we are living in like these, we often look at things that distress us. Like righteous Lot in the city of Sodom, our spirits are vexed within us as we see the wickedness all around us. And what we tend to do is we tend to get full of energy and want to get up and do something about this, right? You've heard this a million times, whether there's somebody on TV that's upset that Christians aren't more activists or Christians that are upset Christians are not being more activist. We forget that the most important thing that we can do in times like this is to pray. And it's become apparent that in our culture today, people are sick and tired of hearing about prayer in response to distress, aren't they? People that didn't believe in prayer in the first place, so I don't know why that surprises us. But even in the church, we can feel that prayer is a waste of time. 
or that it's a cop-out. Oh, I hear that one. Let's pray. Oh, you just want to pray because you're scared to do something about it, as if prayer is not doing something. We're going to see that that is simply not the case. After three weeks of apparently unanswered prayer, Daniel is going to get an unforgettable reminder that the spiritual realm is real and that prayer is indispensable for the life of a believer. It's powerful. Satan's greatest deception is materialism. The belief that there is nothing other than what you can see and observe and measure. But that's not true. There is more to this world than what you can see with your eyes. And the day we forget that is the day we become vulnerable in God's service. So Daniel's been praying for three weeks, fasting, praying. And in verse 4, on the 24th day of the first month, that's the month of Nisan, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Ufaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze and the sound of his words like the sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone, and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground." Pretty impressive vision Daniel has here. He says this is the 24th day of the first month, which is the month of Nisan. You will remember from the book of Exodus that the Lord declared that the month of Passover was to be the first of months for them, and that was called Nisan. This would have placed it, according to our calendar, around March, April. And this is three days after the end of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You would have Passover, you'd have a week of eating unleavened bread, and that's what the feast was called. This is three days after that, as he's sitting on the Tigris River. And suddenly, he sees this vision of a man. So a lot has been made lately of the fact that not all angels in the Bible look like men. Well, a lot of them did. A lot of heavenly beings did. A man with a glorious appearance, he compares him to gemstones like beryl. His face is like lightning and fire, and his voice sounds like a multitude. So, you ever been to a football game and you've heard the whole crowd shouting together, right? When he spoke, it sounded like that. And only Daniel saw this. Everybody else, it says, was struck with fear. Whether they heard the sound, this is what Paul said in Acts 9, verse 7, when he saw the living Jesus on the road to Damascus. Nobody else saw it, but they heard the voice. It could have been something like that. Or maybe God just struck them with fear and they ran not knowing why. Well, they ran away, but he fainted. Daniel fainted. Now, many have noted the similarities in the Bible between this man, as he's described, and the risen Jesus in the book of Revelation. I'm going to read this, this passage from Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. And knowing what we just heard, let's try to compare them in our minds. John says, I saw in the midst of the lampstands one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. 
His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the voice of many waters. Very similar. Can you see that? They both have the white linen robe with the golden belt or sash, that the skin tone is shining like burnished bronze, that the face is very bright, that the voice is overwhelming and loud. So then the question becomes, is Daniel seeing a vision of Gabriel, the angel he saw before? That's the one been talking to him so far. Is this a different angel that is just much more impressive than Gabriel? Or is Daniel seeing a vision of the pre-incarnate Son of God himself? Is this what we call a Christophany? Christ is like Christ, right? Jesus. And phani is like an epiphany to appear, right? Is this an appearance of Christ prior to the incarnation? And you can really make a good case that that is exactly what Daniel is seeing. That he's in fact seeing Jesus before Jesus would, of course, be born and take on the name Jesus. But as with most of these Christophanies, there are several others, like when uh, Joshua saw the angel of the Lord and bowed down, right? Is that the risen or the pre-incarnate Jesus, or is that just another angel? It's very difficult to be certain about this. Like it's difficult to stand on it and say, absolutely, yes, it is. I'd say at the very least, this is a mighty, mighty angel who are plenty intimidating on their own. If you read your Bible, Revelation 19 and 22, John gets rebuked because he sees angels that are so glorious, he bows down to worship them. Then the angel smacks him upside the head and says, no, 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 no. I'm just a messenger. I'm just a servant just like you. See that you do not do that, they say. So there are angels described in the Bible that like have one foot in the ocean, one foot on the land, and their head goes up to heaven. There's a rainbow in their head. Like, all right, there are some pretty impressive angels out there. But it is also possible, and there are some that are very, believe this very strongly, and I, I have no problem with that, that he's seeing the Lord himself in his glory. John 17, 5, Jesus prayed, Restore to me the glory that I had with you before the foundations of the world. So it could be that Daniel sees him in his glory prior to the incarnation. John sees him in his glory after the incarnation. And since they're both prophesying the end of the world, that certainly would fit. But I I won't go so far as to say definitely. I'll just say it's pretty interesting. And if you want to believe that, then you are on good biblical grounds to do so. But the question of who this is specifically does not change the theme from the passage today. And the basic truth that I want to get across is that angels exist. The heavenlies are real. Spiritual is a real thing. It's not just something we made up. Now, this might sound painfully obvious. And if you are a Christian, I hope that this is painfully obvious for you. That the spirit world is absolutely real. That there is a, if you want to use a a term that the Bible doesn't use, there is a dimension beyond what you can see and taste and touch and observe and measure called, to use a biblical term, the heavenlies or the spiritual places. And that not only does that plane of existence exist, it's inhabited by personal beings, the greatest of whom stands on his own is God himself, obviously, but also there are others Just as we in the physical inhabit a physical world, there are spiritual beings that inhabit the spiritual world. There's a million verses I could give on this one, but I chose just to pick one. Psalm 103, verses 19 and 20. So I guess I picked two. It says, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, 
and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, his mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. People say things sometimes like, well, we've sent out the Hubble telescope into space and we have not found heaven yet, therefore there can't be a God. This term in the Bible, heaven, is a, is a rather broad term. And in fact, in the Old Testament, it's, it's in plural. It's the heavens with an S. And it can describe, first of all, just the sky above us, meaning like the heavens up in the clouds where we can't get to. There's another sec- sense where it describes outer space, right? Out where the stars are and the planets, the heavens, right? But there's also the third heaven, as Paul describes it. That's where God lives. You can't fly there if you had the coordinates, all right? The heavenlies, So when we use this term, this is the one I want us to start using, the heavenlies, we're talking about, if you want to call it the spiritual world, the spiritual realm, the dimension where the spirit operates. And in the heavenlies, you, of course, have God himself, but you also have angels. And this term has come under some attack by some really snooty people lately, but it's a perfectly good term that we're going to use. Angel in the Bible just means messenger. You can hear it in the word evangelism. You see how there's angel in the middle of that because you at the beginning of something is a prefix that means good and then angel or angel means message. So an angel is a messenger and this is what we see in the Old Testament. The word is malach and it means the messenger. The word malachi or malachi, that name means my messenger. So there are uh, different names that are given to different kinds of angels. There are cherubim, there are seraphim, and there are some folks that feel really confident in how precisely they can organize these things. We're just going to use the term angel, knowing that there's some broadness of definition here. These are personal beings who live and serve God in the heavenlies. They're not just forces of nature. They're personal because they have names like Gabriel and Michael and Lucifer. They speak. They have tasks to accomplish. They have jobs that they do. We ourselves are physical beings. We live mostly in the physical. However, you also are a living soul, the Bible says. You are a spirit and that you are connected and able to engage and participate in the heavenlies. This is prayer. These are things like hearing the voice of the Lord. This is where your spiritual gifts operate. This is where dreams and visions come from. And that your life is not merely physical, but that there is also a spiritual aspect to it. And it would seem that angels are like that in the inverse, and that they dwell in the spiritual world, yet they have the ability to engage with the physical world. In the Bible, we have see the angels doing all sorts of different things. First of all, we see them worshiping the Lord. Anytime you see a vision of God's throne room, there are angels shouting praise to God. There are songs that are sung in the Bible, but usually they're shouting because the angel, the primary image you get in the angel of the Bible is of a warrior. So they're shouting, they're battle cries, holy, 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 worshiping the Lord, attended, the Bible says, by myriads upon myriads of angels. There's a lot of them, more than you could count. They worship the Lord. They deliver his messages, right? They are messengers. We see throughout the Bible somebody coming and bringing a message like Gabriel did in the book of Daniel, like Gabriel did during the Christmas story, which is you've been hearing a lot about lately, I'm sure. Angels enact the miracles of the Lord. God does not usually do things ex nihilo, which means out of nothing like he did in the book of Genesis. He usually sends a messenger to accomplish it. 
When he says, I I want to roll away the stone so that Jesus come out, he sent an angel to roll away the stone. When the Lord is going to send Ahab into battle so that he can be deceived, he sends an angel to deceive his false prophets. Even in uh, the story of Exodus, when it says God would strike Egypt and strike down the firstborn, we read about the destroying angel, the angel of death that is sent to execute God's plans, much as we ourselves in the physical are sent to execute God's plans. Angels are also out there to protect people. Remember when we read the story in Numbers of the angel standing in the way of Balaam and his donkey? He had a big old flaming sword. Remember we talked about in that story that the donkey saved Balaam's life because it doesn't seem that the angel was just standing there menacingly with a sword, but that he was taking a swing at Balaam. And the donkey was like, I'm out of here, man. I'm running off into this field. And then the Lord then rebukes him for it. He's like, that donkey can see better than you can, man. Angels. What do they look like? They look like all kinds of things, man. A lot of them look just like men, right? We see Gabriel is just described as a man. Angels are often described as having wings. So again, there's some tiresome people. Bible doesn't say the angels are men with wings. Well, it says a lot of them look like men and it says a lot of them have wings. So, you know, you don't need to be so trying to deconstruct every little thing, man. Or angels are often described like beasts. It says that the Lord rode upon a cherub in one of the Psalms. Now, he's not, you know, we think of cherubs, those little fat babies, right? With the little wings, you know, flying around on the, on the ceiling and stuff. Like, Jesus didn't hop on one of those things and ride to the rescue. A lot of people believe that a, and a cherub would have been something along the lines of like a winged lion, something like a griffin, if you want to use European uh, terminology, something like that. There are angels that are described as the burning ones. They're flames of fire. I saw one guy who had a really big imagination. I... I since think this is more imaginative than scripture, but it's like, it seems that these things are, are almost like, like dragon looking things because they're burning ones and they twist and they move. And it's like, yeah, okay, that's kind of pushing it, man. But it's kind of cool to think about anyway. And it's not like that would be too crazy if you read about what angels look like in the Bible. There are some of them that have four faces, one on either side, every side of their head. And they have six different wings covering their feet, covering their face. Ezekiel gets a look at the feet and they have hooves. So four faces, six wings, and hooves. Some of them are look like wheels within wheels. Just like these big swirling wheel things. And it says that those wheels are full of eyes. And that's where the spirit of the four-faced angel lived. So apparently an angel can be here, but his spirit is over here. That's just kind of cool to sit and think about, isn't it? The point is there's really no limit on what an angel looks like. Especially if you read through books like Daniel and Revelation that they're used or they're created in God's immense imagination to do his will. And the Bible tells us that the gospel itself is a testimony to the angels. Ephesians 3 verse 10 says part of the reason that God has saved the world and brought the Jews and Gentiles together is as a testimony to those that dwell in the heavenly places. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 12 says that the angels desire to look into the gospel. They want to know a little more closely what this is all about. Just as most of us would probably desire to look a little more into the affairs of angels. In fact, there's New Testament passages that tell us to conduct ourselves in such a manner with angels in mind. Hebrews 13 verse 2, Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Well, that's something to think about, isn't it? 
Because don't just send folks away when they come to your door, because some people have turned out that was an angel they were talking to. And this could be a reference back to when Abraham invited those three men to come and stay with him. Or there's other instances in the Old Testament where all of a sudden the angel goes up to heaven and they go, oh, that was an angel. 1 Corinthians 11.10 talks about head coverings and that a woman ought to show respect and submission to her husband. It says, because of the angels. I'm not entirely sure what that means. It's irrelevant for today. All that matters is Christians do some things with angels in mind. Now, we are warned in Colossians 2, verse 18, not to become obsessed with angels. You ever known one of those people? Maybe you are one of those people. Colossians 2, 18 says that people, that they go on in great detail about visions, obsessed with angels, and they're, they're not obsessed with Christ, which is who, who they're supposed to be obsessed with, right? So, you know, there's... There was a gentleman that we met in the, the prison one time. We were handing some stuff out, and he said, I'm a believer, and he had some questions. And he went from Scripture to angels to UFOs so fast. It made my head spin, and I didn't quite know what to, like, uh, all right. And I ended up saying, you know what, man? We might need to talk about this another time. I don't know if I have time for that. But angels do matter, and they are real. It is fundamental truth in the Bible that the heavenlies are real. And we are obligated to believe that, too, if we're going to claim to be Bible-believing Christians. I unfortunately had a, had a professor when I was in seminary, who I otherwise very much respect, when we were talking about what we're going to talk about today, principalities and powers, and he said, well, Paul believed that Daniel taught that there were ranks of angels that oversaw the nations. And he kept on saying it like that. Paul believed that Daniel taught. And I was like, well, that means it's true, though, right? Because if Paul taught it and Daniel taught it, he goes, well, I mean, yeah, that's, that's what it seems to say. I said, do you believe that? Well, I, I think that seems to be what the scripture is indicating. And it's like, that's academic speak for, no, I don't. But I won't say it out loud because I know how it sounds. It was really a shame. It's like, if the Bible teaches it, you are obligated to believe it. And that seems just basic, right? There's more to the world than what you see. Isn't that exciting? There's more to the world than what you see. Even science can acknowledge that now. And not like to this degree, but they're like, you know what? The more we look at this stuff, the more we realize there's really no reason this should work. And everything seems like there's way more stuff here than there should be. So where is all of it? And none of this seems to make any, any sense. And you know what? You should not be ashamed when you say, I believe that there are heavenly places and that there are heavenly beings that live there. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed because we're going to see the stakes are far too high for you to cast aside a belief in angels. Verse 10 through 14. Now remember, we left Daniel, passed out. So verse 10, behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. That's progress. And he said to me, oh, Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words. That's a verse worth memorizing, friends. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Hmm. And came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. 
Daniel is treated very tenderly by this figure, be it a mighty angel or the Lord himself. Uh, And he's told that he's loved. He's told not to fear not. I want to talk more about that subject, but we'll do it in in the next section here. What he came to do is to help him understand the fate of his nation, the nation of Israel, in the latter days, as we will see. I unfortunately have seen a rising trend of prophecy teachers who seem to have a disdain for Israel, which I don't see how you can study Bible prophecy and and have such a belief. But the the messenger says, I came in answer to your prayer. It says, from the first day, how long has Daniel been praying? Three weeks. Day one, he began to pray and this angel was sent. Here's the question. What took you so long? The answer is that he was withstood. Someone tried to stop him. Now, who can stop an angel? When men see angels, they fall trembling on their face. This is opposition from a fallen angel, a demonic force. And it had to be overcome by the assistance of another angel, namely Michael. Michael is the only, is the second of the two named angels in the Bible. The only two we have are Gabriel and Michael. We watch in this chapter and we see a glimpse behind the veil of the heavenlies to the battle that is going on all around you. This is where we get the term spiritual warfare. That term's not in the Bible. The concept is in the Bible. When you see behind the physical, you realize that there is conflict, battle, and warfare going on all around you. We see this also in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. Elisha was the prophet at this time, and one of the, the pagan kings sent an army to arrest him. They surrounded his city. It tells you the, the fear he had for Elisha. Huh? We're going to need a whole army to take this guy. Well, Elisha's servant, Gehazi, sees that and starts to panic and say, we're surrounded. What are we going to do? And Elisha goes, ah, don't worry about it. There's way more on our side than there is on their side. And the servant goes, all right, Elisha has finally cracked. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Look, look at the size of this army. There's nothing here. And it says in 2 Kings 6, 17, Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. How would you like to blink? And when you open your eyes, now you can see the angelic activity around you. I wonder if he was like, Elisha, is this what you see all the time? (laughs) The point is that behind what we can see is there are things that we cannot see. And much of it is conflict, warfare, battle between the Lord's angels, the Lord's messengers, and fallen angels. And this is our second thing we got to get into here. There are rebellious, fallen angels that we call demons. Once again, people are like, well, that's, that's too broad of a term. It works. It's perfectly fine. Demon, a fallen angel. These are spiritual, personal, heavenly beings that are now under the authority and leadership of Satan himself, who was a fallen angel. And depending on the past, I'm not going to do a deep dive into who Satan is, but the passages talk about Satan being one of the exalted cherubs, one of the archangels who was cast down because of pride in his heart. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, calls the devil the God of this world, the little g, 
God of this world. Ephesians 2 verse 2 calls him the prince of the power of the air. Remember heavenlies, right? The heavens is a broad term. Power of the air. These demons work to, according to the words of Jesus, steal, kill, and destroy. They hate life. They hate humanity. They hate God. And I'm inclined to think they probably hate themselves too. They just want to see everything destroyed. They're trying to rob as many souls out of heaven as possible. They're trying to destroy anything that is good, to corrupt anything that is wholesome. And to those ends, first of all, they tempt. Satan can't make you do anything. He can tempt you. He can present the opportunity to you. He can offer suggestions to you, which is why the Bible tells us not to be ignorant of him. It says us to watch out for him. They can afflict us. We see this in the Gospels an awful lot. There are those that were afflicted with sickness by a spirit of affliction. Most sickness is physical. Not all of it is physical. Some of it is spiritual. Sometimes Jesus would lay hands on somebody and heal their bodies. Other times he would cast out a spirit of affliction, which seems to be different from level three, which is possession. This is incredibly rare. But this is when a person has their mind taken over by an indwelling spirit. Just as the Holy Spirit indwells you, imagine being indwelt by a demonic spirit. It's terrible. And I think, if I can just give my two cents here, my pastoral two cents, some people are way too free with accusations and speculation of possession. I'll just put it this way. Our, our friends in Nepal, our brothers there who, I mean, they deal with idolatry and witchcraft and magic and all kinds of stuff. And they've all cast out demons. Some of them had demons cast out of themselves. And uh, my dad asked them one time, he said, so in America, sometimes we're not quite sure about this. How do you know when someone's possessed or when someone's just maybe a little insane or maybe is just struggling with something? And all of the, the pastors started to laugh. And he said, what, what's so funny? What's so funny? And they said, oh, you'll know. Apparently, it's that obvious. And if you look at the actual legitimate testimonies of those that have dealt with this thing, yeah, it's obvious. Do not be the kind of person that when somebody is struggling with a sin or somebody dealing with some kind of grief or sadness, you be the one to point out and say, you've got a demon dwelling in you. It's a sick thing to do if it's not really happening. And if that is true, you ought to cast that demon out by the authority of Jesus Christ. They tempt, they afflict, they even possess men. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That means your enemies are not anybody in Washington. Your enemies are not anybody around the world. It's not your neighbor. It's not your family. It's not anybody who has flesh and blood. We wrestle against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's something to make you sit up and pay attention, isn't it? The church's enemy is not people. They're the ones that we're sent to save. (laughs) Our enemies are the ones that are causing all of this destruction, that are exacerbating sin and driving people to do terrible things. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's that description of the heavenlies again. This conflict is described as warfare, and that battle is as real as what goes on right in front of you. Imagine if an angel were to say to his friend, I don't know if I believe in humans. I mean, I know what God said, but I mean, have you ever seen the physical world before? We kind of laughed at that just now. Well, why do we think we get to say, you know, I don't know if I really believe in angels. (laughs) 
The Bible says it. Yeah, but have you ever seen it? First of all, yeah, some of us have. And secondly, God's word is the one we're going to listen to. Now, folks will say things like, how can God allow, or why would God create fallen angels? Why would God create demons? Well, let's get it right. God did not create them that way. God allows for decision in the spiritual just as in the physical. And the the traditional way of describing this is that there was a point of decision where angels made their decision, and that decision was locked in for all time. I don't see any scripture that says that. What I see is that there are descriptions of unclean spirits and clean spirits. And the rest of it is a mystery, which maybe we shouldn't be so quick to speak about, not knowing what we understand, to use Paul's terminology. Once again, it is possible to be obsessed with demons and not with Jesus. When demons came across Jesus, they whined and cried like little babies. So why are we so worried about it? Some people see demons in everything. Like, oh, the, lights, the light won't turn green. There must be a demon trying to make me late. It's like, maybe you should wake up earlier in the morning. How about that? But it is equally dangerous to ignore the reality. Consider how angel-centric Jesus' ministry was. It says they would bring him all the sick, but also what? All those who had unclean spirits. And he would drive them out. So Jesus' healing ministry wasn't just a lot of people shouting and celebrating and praising God. It was the howls and the gnashing of teeth of demons being driven out of the host they'd had for years. Begging for mercy. Look at the ministry of the book of Acts. Again, demons being cast out. Remember the sons of Sceva? These were not Christians. These were itinerant exorcists that went around finding demon-possessed people and trying to cast them out. They heard that Paul and the apostles were having some success with this guy named Jesus. So they show up to this exorcism and they say, I adjure you by the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches. Come out of him. And says, the demon in that man turned and looked at them and says, Oh, I know Jesus and I know Paul, but who are you? Because what have they said? I adjure you. He said, you adjure me. And it says that demon-possessed man beat them up, ripped their clothes off, and sent them away bloody and screaming. And it says a lot of people got saved because they're like, okay, this is real. <laughs> okay, Jesus is real. <clears throat> Throughout church history, too, it's the same thing. Christians are both the battlefield of spiritual warfare and the prize of spiritual warfare. You've got to reframe your conception of life as not just things happening. You are under constant influence, as are all the people around you, both positive and negative. And doesn't that just feel right to you? That you see things that happen and you go, how could that happen? It almost feels like there's somebody trying to make me do this stuff. Yeah, there is. Is that so hard to believe? That the things that you have sworn you're never going to do again, all of a sudden the next day, you want to do it so badly, even though you hate every minute of it, it's because you're being tempted, Christian. It's this world of spiritual conflict around you, as Daniel just learned. And we're going to talk more about that Prince of Persia thing in just a second, so hold on. Verse 15. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke. I said to him who stood before me, O oh, my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now, no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O oh, man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, 
for you have strengthened me. So Daniel is so overwhelmed he can't even talk. And even when the angel restores him, he feels unable to speak in such company. Angels are fearsome. Jude says that one of the marks of a false teacher is that they have no respect for the might of angels and demons in the spiritual world. He says, even Michael the archangel didn't rebuke the devil. So folks that want to strut around rebuking Satan, Jude specifically tells us not to do that. He says, you say, may the Lord rebuke you. Get God involved. Who are you? Right? It's, well, there, every demon is under subjection. Yeah, that's true. But Jude tells us, friend, you need to have a little respect, not like for them personally, but for the level of threat that you are facing. And also for the level of threat that is on your side. But see again the kindness of God here. Daniel is called greatly loved. He's told, fear not. He's told, have peace. That's how God speaks to his people. Every time an angel shows up, what's the first words out of their mouth? Fear not, for I bring you tidings of great joy, right? God does not frighten us. He doesn't condemn us. He offers comfort to us. This is, this is how St. Anthony, one of my church history heroes, when people asked him, how do you know the difference when a demon or God is talking to you? He goes, easy, demons try to scare you and God tries to comfort you. Well, Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He goes, yeah, but Satan likes to spook people. He doesn't offer true peace. Only God can do that. What do we see from this section real quickly? Angels are real and angels are at war, but guess what? Angels are fighting for us. See the help that Daniel receives from this angel here? Just by talking to him, he begins to feel better because angels have spiritual influence given to them by the Lord. There are helpers. Hebrews 1.14, I remember this verse blew my mind when I was a kid. The writer says, Are angels not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? What are angels doing? They're serving you. That's pretty cool to think about. The angelic task is to assist the saved. Read the book of Acts. They broke Peter out of prison. They ministered to Jesus in the wilderness. They ministered to Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, just as they're ministering to Daniel here. God's answers to prayer are administered by angelic messengers. Right? God could, remember, snap his fingers, but God created a world with people, spiritual and physical, in it to do his will. So when God wants something done, he sends an angel. Just like how God wants to evangelize the world, he sent people. Consider how Daniel's three-week prayer brought about the message we're going to read here in verses, chapters 11 and 12. There are agents bringing answers to your prayers, and they are opposed. At this very moment, we know that Michael was fighting against the prince of Persia. There was a demon battle, a spirit battle going just above Daniel's head. And the reason it had taken so long is because Daniel's prayers mattered. This is why Jesus tells us in Luke 18, 1, that we ought always to pray and not to lose heart. 1 Thessalonians 5, 17, pray without ceasing. James 4, verse 2, you do not have because you do not Ask, and may we add to that, because you do not keep asking like Jesus told you. Imagine if Daniel had stopped praying after two weeks. Well, God's will will be done. God's will is done through prayer. This is why God tells us to pray. God is sovereign, but God has brought people into the process. That's how he does what he wants to do. 
We are working right now in tandem with the angels to accomplish God's purposes. Prayer is not just a conversation between you and God. It is that, but it's more than that. It is the means of activating the power of God, which will then be fulfilled by angels. And if you don't believe that your prayers make a difference, why in the world did James say you have not because you ask not? We are told to keep praying because your prayers make a difference. And it is clear, too, that demons can hinder our prayers from being answered. Why? Because God is weak? No, but because the answer to prayer is brought through angelic intermediaries, and they can be opposed by demonic intermediaries. That's why in 1 Peter 3, 7, Paul tells husbands, respect and love your wives so that your prayers will not be hindered. Because if the demon can get a, a, a foothold in your life because of your mistreatment of your wife, then that's going to hinder your prayers. Mark 9, 29, Jesus said, some demons only are cast out through prayer and fasting. Which means that the average Christian cannot just walk up to any situation. That some demons are stronger than others. And some of them have to be prayed out. Fasted out. How important then, knowing all that, is prayer? Persistent, passionate, insistent prayer. In Ephesians chapter 6, when Paul talks about, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual hosts of wickedness, and he goes to the armor of God, right? The helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The only thing we are told to do in that passage, in response to the spiritual hosts of evil, is to pray. What do we do about this? Praying always in the Spirit, Paul said. Praying how often? Always. Prayer is not just a show or a good idea. It is how we engage in the heavenly battle. Well, God's going to do what God's going to do. Yeah, and God told you to pray. It's interesting how we can use the sovereignty of God as an excuse to ignore God's commandments. This interaction, this partnership with our angelic comrades is going to continue until the final day. And in fact, 1 Corinthians 6.3 says that in the kingdom, we are going to judge angels. That they're going to be placed under our authority. So add that to your picture of kingdom come. That you will be the resurrected immortal kings and queens reigning over those that still live on the earth, enforcing righteousness with an iron hand, judging and commanding angels on behalf of Almighty God. That's pretty cool. We'll get to that in the book of Revelation, but that is pretty cool. So you see what the devil's doing? You see him ravaging someone's life or ravaging your country or causing kinds of trouble? What can you do? You must pray. That's the essential part. If Daniel had stopped, who knows what might have happened? Because we see in verse 20 and 21, this is probably the part you were hoping I'd get to. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? Kind of like, you got it now? You've passed out a couple times. You feeling Okay. But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. This figure is in a bit of a hurry. Why is he in a hurry? Because Michael, the prince, is currently fighting the prince of Persia. And then the prince of Greece is going to come and they're going to have to fight him too. Time is of the essence, it would seem. Kind of like how the angel is telling Peter to hurry when they're trying to escape the prison. There's a battle going on that Peter can't see. He thinks he's having a dream. And the, you read the story. Angel's like, Peter, you've got to go, man. Wow, what an amazing dream. 
And it says the angel actually kicked him in the side to wake him up. That's pretty, pretty cool, too. Well, we're reading about princes here. This Hebrew word prince is the word sar, just S-A-R, sar. And it, it doesn't mean prince technically like we do. We say that a prince is the, the son of the king, the, the next heir. Prince is, is much closer to principality. You could read official or lord or high-ranking officer. And in this context and in any context like it, the word prince refers to an angelic authority, specifically over a nation or a territory. Deuteronomy 32 verse 8 is our first uh, example of this. When Moses is talking to the people, he kind of drops this and moves on. But he said, when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Who are the sons of God? It's the angels. Remember in Job chapter 1 and 2, all the sons of God gathered together before the Lord. Remember in Genesis 6 that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And that that was the sin that caused God to say, all right, we're having a flood. Tells us in Deuteronomy 32 that God assigned territorial national authority to angelic rulers. And Deuteronomy will continue and say, but God chose Israel for himself. But he assigned angelic authorities over these nations, all of whom rejected his rule. Now, whether this was punishment and that I'm giving you over to these demonic angelic authorities, or if they started out faithful and usurped authority for themselves is irrelevant at this point. This is what Psalm 82 is all about. Psalm 82 is not a psalm written against the people of the nations, but against the angelic and demonic princes of the nations. Otherwise, how do you explain a verse like this? Psalm 82, 6 and 7. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Little g gods. I set you up as functioning gods over these lands. But now you've taken this authority for yourself. You're no longer glorifying me. You're no longer bringing about justice. Therefore, God says, all right, you little gods, you're going to die like any other man. That's some serious spiritual trash talk right there. Whenever Paul talks about principalities and powers. You can hear the word prince in principality, can't you? Principalities and powers. Colossians 2.15 talks about it. Ephesians talks about it. He's attesting to this reality. You see this throughout the Bible. The angels often gather in council to make decisions to enact God's will. We mentioned Job 1 and 2. 1 Kings 22. They gather together. The Lord says, I want to strike down Ahab. Who's got any ideas? And somebody says, how about I go into those lying prophets that he's gathered around himself and I'll give them a false vision. And then that's what they did. Daniel sees in this chapter that the rise and the fall of nations is brought about through heavenly angelic conflict. Can I say that again? The rise and fall of nations is brought about through heavenly angelic conflict. When a nation rises or falls, there is a corresponding angelic victory or defeat in the heavenlies. And it is all worked out according to the will of the Lord. But remember, the Lord uses angels in the spirit to enact his will. The same could be said for the moral state of a nation, that there is angelic and demonic activity at work there. This does not abdicate your responsibility as if it's not my fault the devil made me do it. The devil can't make you do anything, don't forget. 
And you ought to seek the Lord and, and invoke God's help in those situations. We're not given insight into how it works or even what this battle looks like, as much as I would have loved to have a little description of this. And you're given no special instructions to influence this fight other than to pray. I think it is plain to see that in a nation like ours, the devil's angels are growing strong. I don't think you can draw any other conclusion based on what we're seeing. I think it's, it's the, the no nation rises up unless the Lord has brought it about. We're not special in that respect. We're just one of the many nations. But as we see moral and even physical decline, the Bible tells us that there is demonic activity at work in the heavenly places there. I don't often call out specific things, but this grieved me so bad, and I think it matches what I'm talking about here. I want to mention it. You know, this last week, there was a bipartisan legislative decision to affirm homosexual marriage passed through the Congress. Now, this is not mandating every state that has to do this, but they're saying other states have to respect the laws, which sounds very reasonable, doesn't it? Until you remember Romans 1.32 says that those that are under God's judgment not only know that those who do such things deserve to die, they give approval to those who do them. And God holds those things at the same level. And worst of all, in my opinion, is that it's both sides. It's both sides. You know, you, I, it's, it's one thing when you talk about the party that hates the church anyway. You got the other one that has been pretending for a long time to love the church. I mean, what's happening now? Now that they see that the, the homosexual issue has kind of been resolved culturally, they're willing to compromise on it. And the church should not put up with that. No one deserves the Christian support. And when you saw that there was a deliberate rejection of specific religious protections, that just concerns me more. And again, I don't like to talk about this stuff so much, but sometimes you see these things and it just raises your antenna a little bit. It's like if this is not going to be used to, to press back on religious groups, on Christians, then why not just put it in there? It concerns me. Because that issue specifically is a, according to the Bible, is a mark of the removal of spiritual restraint from God. God says, when I give people over to this thing, this is how you can tell. He equates it to idolatry. And here we are celebrating it because, well, at least it's not trans stuff. It's the same thing, friends. It's the same thing going all the way back to adultery, fornication, and pornography. And yet, even those in response to it, has the church been proposing, let's get on our knees and fast and pray and, and go about in sackcloth and ashes? No, activism. Let's do something about it. That's where we lose, guys. The fight is a spiritual one. We wage war in the heavenlies because that's where we're strong. 2 Corinthians 10, 3 through 5. Though we walk in the flesh, this is what people always love to say, right? Well, we still have to live in this world. We've still got to make things happen. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but they have divine power to destroy strongholds. Imagine trying to attack heaven with bows and arrows. Oh, you're saying bows and arrows aren't deadly? I'm saying it's the wrong weapon for the wrong fight. But when we use the divine power to destroy strongholds, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. By the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit of Christ, we have more power than ever before. 1 John 4, 4 says, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And yet the devil tricks us 
and to fighting on his battleground where we're weak. Don't, he says, don't fight in the realm where the Holy Spirit of God has empowered you. Fight in the world where you have none of that power. Let me say something I hope doesn't throw you off. But I'll, I'll never forget this. In 2016, when President Trump was campaigning, he came to Liberty University, and one of the things he said to some evangelical leaders there, and I think this was an honest question from him, he's like, there's so many Christians in the world, you have all this power, why don't you use it? And a lot of people said, yeah, he's right. We ought, to, we ought to vote and we ought to do such and such, which that's all fine. But the thing is, I think he was more right than he knew and that most Christians realize. I'm not talking about political influence. I'm not talking about a large platform. I'm not talking about affecting elections. I'm talking about, he says, you have all this power and you don't use it in the heavenly places. You have all this power and you don't use it. We don't use it. If the devil could affect one master strategy against the church, if he's doing like, who wants to be a millionaire? And he's got one lifeline. Stop them from praying. Because that's where all the power is. It would be to keep us from prayer while he executes his terrible plan. And that's what's happening. And the church is not responding with a call for revival and prayer and fasting and renewed devotion to the Lord. We're treating it like it's a physical problem. Which is why, for all the talk about Christian and church, the gospel is really nowhere to be found, is it? But here's what we at Calvary Chapel Trustville are going to do. We're going to fall on our knees. And we're going to wage war in the spirit. Because when we do that, Satan can't stop this church. He's got to bar the gates because we're storming the gates. I truly believe that there's going to be a mighty revival sweep through this country. That's going to out-Pentecost Pentecost. Then after that, we're going to have a different set of problems to deal with. But we're not going to get anywhere if we don't start thinking according to the heavenlies. Listen, if you think like a worldling, you're going to act like a worldling. But if you truly believe this, then you've got to pray. Daniel prayed three weeks to receive a message at the end of the world. The church prayed 10 days to receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Jesus prayed for 40 days before he began his ministry. So how long are you willing to fast and pray and watch and wait, Christian? I think if we could hear them right now, our angelic brothers in arms would be crying out for help. You've got to keep praying. We can't fight if you don't pray. Let's give it to them.